welcome to the Serviced Accommodation Property Podcast. This podcast by Kevin Paneskis, also known as the Property Soldier, covers all aspects of serviced accommodation and how to make it a profitable and sustainable business. Kevin started investing in property in 1991 whilst serving in the British Army and now owns a multi-million pound property portfolio and serviced accommodation business and is a best-selling author. And now your host. Kevin Paneskis. Hello and welcome to the Service Combination Property Podcast. Today I have got Will Parry. Can I have a new? Yeah, don't know who he is yet. Okay, so he is the CEO of Altido. So Altido Excellence in Hospitality Management. So Altido actually manage our hotel and they actually manage service accommodation for us as well. Now, Altido are actually a uh, Europe-wide, Western Europe-wide company, so a pretty big fish. So it's a bit of a coup that we've got Will here to come and do the keynote talk for you guys. I won't steal Will Thunder anymore. Let him introduce himself and what Altido do. Thank you guys for having me here today. Absolutely delighted. Uh, I've just come up from London uh, on, on the train and to, to talk to you guys today. I'm going to tell you a bit about uh, my story, my journey and Altido's journey, where we've got to so far, the story so far and where we um, hope to go. Uh, also going to share some lessons that I've learned along the way that may be useful um, to some of you in, in a similar position as you grow your your businesses and your portfolios. Um, and then also going to explain a bit more about how we work with, with people like Kevin and Caroline, uh, so some of the services and expertise that we've built up in-house that um, may be useful to you guys and happy to talk about that uh, afterwards or, or in future. So Altido, so the name. A lot of people don't realize Altido stands for a life that I dream of. Um, and we are a guest-facing hospitality brand. Uh, and we, we created this brand in 2019. Uh, out of a merger, um, and we are now yeah, European-wide. So we've got uh, offices in uh, the UK and Scotland and England, London and Edinburgh, are big cities there, and then in Portugal, uh, in Lisbon, in Italy and Milan, uh, and in Spain and France as well. Uh, we've got up to about, um, probably by the end of this year, we'll have about 500 staff, full-time staff. So it's, it's become uh, quite a big beast to manage, um, but we've still got big, uh, plans for the future. So how did this all happen? Um, well, here's me, uh, and here's lots of other brands of other businesses that I haven't spoken about. Um, so LRC was actually a business that I founded in London in 2015, uh, and LRC standard for the uh, London Residence Club. So we were a high-end property management business, and I set it up with a, an old friend, a childhood friend, uh, and we uh, like many other people at, at that time, noticed the um, surge in short-term rentals. Um, this was seen with Airbnb's expansion. It was Airbnb was becoming a household name. Uh, and I think they were adding probably about 20,000 listings a year in London. And Airbnb obviously made it very accessible for anyone to, to let out their home, which was, which was great. Um, but when people actually started doing that, they realize it's actually quite tricky, um, particularly if you start doing um, more than one property, you've got to be on call for these guests, you can, can call at any time, uh, and it's it's a bit of a challenging business. And so um, they, businesses like us popped up because it's the barriers to entry were relatively low. All you needed to do as, as a management 
agent was uh, find an owner who was willing to give you their property. Uh, you take a commission of the rent um, and then you have all the, the fun stuff in terms of listing the property, finding the guests, uh, cleaning the property um, and then being on hand for them to provide that hospitality service whilst they were there. Um, but while it may seem sort of fun and easy at the start, um, it's, you, you start generating revenue quite quickly and it seems quite exciting and quite lucrative. As you scale, um, it turns out there's quite a lot of challenges um, in running running a, yeah, a larger portfolio. And um, I'm going to talk through some of the lessons we learned uh, along the way. Um, but why are there these these other brands uh, down here? So you can see B&B Buddy, Hintown and Rent Experience. Um, and that was, uh, those are the three other companies we merged with in 2019 to form this new brand. Um, so that's quite unusual, probably by any industry standards to try and merge four companies together at once. It's certainly something I had never done before. Um, but we felt that there were, there were two ways of approaching, um, the market. We could, um, continue to grow as an independent, profitable business. We hadn't raised any external money. Um, but we knew we were, we were, we knew we, we should, we thought we should diversify. Um, being in just one city, there was some risks there, perhaps some regulatory risks. Um, and also we had ambitions to grow. And some of our competitors at that time were raising quite a lot of external capital, typically from venture capital. Uh, and going into new markets um, with large checkbooks and, and big marketing budgets, um, but with limited success um, and, and in some cases some quite spectacular failures. Uh, and our approach was actually, well, this is a very much a local business. You need to understand your market and have a local team, um, particularly when you're working on the continent and you've got linguistic challenges as well. So we we felt the way to establish that size was was through a merger to form um, form Altida. Uh, and yeah, I'll just, so yeah, this was back in 2015. That's my business partner, Tom. You'll, if you, the eagle eyed amongst you will notice we're holding, um, a bottle of apple juice. Um, in a prior life, uh, we used to make apple juice. So we went from apple juice into property. Property suddenly became a lot more, uh, exciting and lucrative. So we dispensed with the, with the juice and we got cracking on the London Residence Club. And four years later was when we finally got the, the merger over the line to create Altido. There was a couple of uh, interesting milestones along that way, including an acquisition of a competitor, uh, which led to one of the biggest uh, operational and structural changes of our business to date. Um, and as a core part of our business, I'm going to talk more about that later on. Um, merging in 2019 was great. Um, it was a, a very good year for short-term lets. We turned over just under 10 million that year, that's in our commission, not in gross booking value. So that was our commission and cleaning fees. Um, so we had a sizable business. Uh, we're managing a significant portfolio and probably had um, about 100 staff at that point. Uh, but obviously, we didn't know what was coming around the corner with COVID, um, which was, yeah, we've just doubled down. And then and then we were facing uh, a very challenging time to be in the travel industry. But we we weathered the storm. And one of the reasons why we felt like we had to um, diversify and, and, and get this international footprint is we felt would be a lot more attractive to um, potential external investors and ultimately an exit one day. And that I'm going to talk about, you know, what, what constitutes success and, and, and what, um, what people's overall visions are for their business. But for us, that was that was something that was important to us. Uh, and so we felt like um, by positioning ourselves as a European business with a significant portfolio, that would be uh, that would be beneficial. 
And so when COVID began to subside in 2021, we started looking externally, having never raised money, having always been profitable. Uh, and we came across a company in an adjacent space, um, a well-funded company in Italy called Dover Vivo, which means where I live. And they're a co-living uh, business. So they have a co-living portfolio across Italy, uh, Spain and France. We were in uh, Portugal, Italy and the UK. So there were some interesting synergies. We were in adjacent industries. They wanted to move into our space. We were quite keen to move into their space. Uh, they had raised a significant amount of money from um, a US real estate fund. Some of you may have heard of called Starwood Capital, which was the original um, backer behind um, the Starwood Hotel Resorts. Um, and we, yeah, we we actually ended up merging with them as well. Um, so what happened in that deal? They acquired the entirety of Altido uh, and the founders like myself and the other founders left who stayed on um, to run the Altido business reinvested into the holding company. So I appreciate there's a lot of things going on here and it can be quite quite confusing, but happy to answer questions later on. But this is just to give you a kind of whistle-stop tour of, of where we got to. And so last year we had our biggest um, and best year to date. It was a fantastic year for the the short-term let world, we had external capital now to spend to to really fast track our growth. Um, and we've ended up here. We've got uh, over 2,000 properties that we manage as Altido. We've got over 1,000 beds that we manage uh, via our pop-up hotel model. Um, that might sound slightly strange to you, but essentially what that is is taking purpose-built student accommodation, which in the summer the students all leave. Um, but uh, we then come in and turn it into a hotel. So there'd be anywhere between 100 to 200 beds uh, and run that as a hotel. It worked particularly well in supply constrained areas like Edinburgh. For those of you who know, in, in, in August, the Fringe Festival, which is one of the largest events in the world. I think it's the biggest after the World Cup and the Olympics. We've got millions of people coming in. Uh, and there's Edinburgh is quite a small city. So we, we bring this um, extra accommodation and, and sell it to tourists. Um, we've also, having started out just Airbnb management, individual units, individual owners supporting them, um, we've started working with uh, larger players, um, hotel owners, part hotel owners, uh, and we started leasing as well. It's something we didn't um, didn't do much of, um, fortunately, pre-COVID. Uh, but post-COVID, um, with, with the larger backing now, we started leasing uh, buildings and, and running them on, on our own. Um, so we, we host hundreds of thousands of guests a year, um, got millions of room nights a year, uh, and we've, we've become a fairly sizable operation. Um, our plans are to stick within the countries we are, we're already in, uh, and can continue to consolidate those. Um, and we're growing, uh, in England, for example, L London is HQ, but we've opened up Birmingham this year. Um, we do a bit of work in York and some stuff on the South Coast. So we're, continue to expand um, as the opportunities present themselves. So what have I learned uh, along the way? Um, many things, um, but as I mentioned earlier, one thing I think is really important for all of you guys to bear in mind um, is to constantly ask yourself this question, what constitutes success? Um, and to come back to it because it will change. Um, I remember when I sat around the kitchen table with my business partner Tom eight years ago, what constitutes success then? And we wrote it down and we revisited that is, is different from, from today. And that's okay because obviously the market changes, the 
you achieve some goals, you don't achieve all goals. But I think really evaluating what that means to you as an individual. And if you have um, business partners, making sure that you understand what their drivers are as well, because if there's a conflict there, it's really important to work that out. So you need to be aligned um, on this journey to get through the tough times. But there's no right or wrong answer to this. And it requires reflection. I mean, for some of you, it could be a lifestyle business. And I think, you know, probably when we started out, that was something in our mind. I think in the early days, it felt like, okay, we could create a nice portfolio here and get some, ultimately bring in an ops team and then we can step back and it'll tick over and we'll have some some passive income. Um, I think that changed when we realized, it, you know, running a business uh, in this industry is tough. It's, 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 it's hard work and it's, it's full on and um, often, uh, you know, in those those first couple of years, the guests would call my mobile phone if something goes wrong. And that could be any time of day. Similarly, with owners, if something goes wrong, they want to get hold of you. So it's understanding um, the nature of the business and how that fits in with your needs. I think this was a key question for us um, starting out as a small, independent London, central London player. But we weren't really known. Um, we, our ambition was to be at that time the best, but not not the biggest. Um, we wanted to provide a really quality service going after high-end units. And we're going to talk a bit more about why I think that's really important from a, an economic perspective um, in a minute. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I think diversifying for us was was really important. Um, so working out, well, how do we expand beyond London? We were living in London. We knew London. But how do we go next? Well, how do we get to the next step? And, and why do we want to go there? And as mentioned, I think it was in line with our ultimately our ambitions and that diversification piece. But again, no right or wrong answer, but something that's key to, to ask yourself. Um, I think this is an important one and it links to this idea of, you know, you're looking for passive income. Is this just a, something you want to do until retirement or uh, are you looking for a big payday? Is that shareholding? You know, is that are you building a nest egg? Is that a, a capital that is going to be important? And at what point in your life is that that going to be important? I think for myself and Tom, when we started out, we were 25 or so and hungry to to, to run and grow a business. Um, but thinking, yeah, one day that that this this could be worth something. What that might be and what that looks like, we didn't know, but we've learned along along the way. Uh, and then, yeah, linking linking back to that lifestyle business. Do you want to remove yourself operationally from the day to day? Now, now these aren't. This isn't exhaustive. This is just a few ideas. It might be that you want to create an impact business. You might want to uh, really enjoy working with the team. Um, you might want to deliver for your customers and, and create a really powerful brand that you can be proud of. There's there's no right or wrong answer, but it's questions that you should definitely. Um, be mulling over and continue in a routine way, maybe some accountability with someone, maybe with, with some of the guys you meet here um, to, to reevaluate that. Um, so what else have I learned? Um, I think growth, growth has clearly been something, you know, over the eight years or so I've been doing this, every year has looked different in the, the way in which we've grown, but something that's never changed, even through COVID, is we always were growing. Um, sometimes growing successfully and other times I would say unsuccessfully. And, and, and there are two metrics that spring to mind and they may sound obvious, but it's amazing how easy it is to, to lose sight of them. And the ADR, the average daily rate was is something that has become so important for us. Um, and combining that with occupancy as well, you've got to be careful if you're a seasonal business and you're taking on um, fixed overheads 
uh, are, are you going to be, yeah, are, are, how are you going to manage those downtimes? I've seen a lot of businesses, including the one we acquired in 2017, that go, you know, have a great summer, go into September, October, the bookings begin to drop off, the ADR goes down, and by the time they get through to April, um, they've run out of money and gone bust. They couldn't get to another summer. Uh, so that was a, a chastening lesson for us to see it happen to someone else and also to be aware that we need to be really careful that that doesn't happen to us. Um, and I think the, the, the sort of temptation here is, is can be, particularly a, a business of our size, is to grow for growth's sake. And we've seen certainly, again, We've done it ourselves and I've seen it with competitors that vanity metrics can take over where you just any unit is another unit and it looks like scale and it looks great. Um, but is it actually making you money and is it actually aligned with your ambitions? Um, and so we've, we've become laser focused on the type of inventory that we bring on and we put it through our system to make sure that it's delivering with the sorts of margins that we need to um, deliver to build a sustainable business. I think one key lesson that you learned the hard way over COVID was, you know, un, in some senses, unintentionally, we'd grown this quite big business and had a lot of livelihoods dependent on us. And the pressure that I felt leading the business back in 2020, where we didn't know if we were going to survive or not, thanks to the government and some loans, we were able to. But there was a time where I was seriously thinking, you know, will, will we get out of this? And so I think keeping that in the back of the mind about the responsibility you have, not just yourself and your own ambitions, but your team begins to um, focus the mind of, of keeping your, your strategy really in the right place and making sure that your, your business is sustainable for the long, for the long term. Um, and lastly, uh, on the growth side, conversely is, is churn. You're always going to lose units for all sorts of reasons and, and you budget for that. Sometimes uh, an owner you're working with, you know, needs the property back, they might need to sell it. It might not just be working well as a relationship for whatever reason, operationally, financially. And sometimes um, as the business owner, particularly in the early days, we were, we were at pains to let anything go because that was revenue coming in. But actually knowing when to say enough's enough, there's a there's too much operational stress, too much stress on yourself, perhaps, it's important to be able to say, I don't think this relationship is working and time to stop. Um, once you've started growing a business and you've got these properties, you've got to run them. This is the tough bit. This is the reason why businesses like mine exist, is you're, um, you're dealing with uh, hassle that other people don't want to deal with. It's a, it's a, it's a tough business, uh, and you need robust operational systems and you need an experienced team. I think in the early days, our staff turnover was, was very high. We had a tiny team and we were in London and it was a stressful atmosphere to come into. But I think something that's really worked well for us is a lot of our staff now have been with us a number of years and gained valuable expertise along the way. And that, that really pays dividends into the business. But there's two points I, I think I'd, I'd definitely focus on. And this um, was, again, put into the spotlight last week when I was attending one of our um, annual industry conferences in London. And it's so clear that, that the power of technology and getting that right um, in a business like this, we use we don't develop any technology in-house or, or very little. Um, we rely on best-in-class um, third-party tech. So we have our property management software. We have task management system to manage um, uh, the housekeeping and the maintenance issues. We have a um, revenue management software. So 
dynamic pricing. We have industry data that we buy to understand um, what what the, the local rates are. And we have software to help us vet the guests to make sure that the people we're letting into our properties are there for the right reasons. Um, and there's many more technologies stack on top of that, but it's something you want to constantly evaluate again um, and, and get right. Um, the second point is one, going to be one of the biggest things I'm going to talk about today, and that's um, building and investing in a central office to run your core functions. Um, and we have, uh, we, yeah, we, we have offices all over Europe. We have the on-the-ground local operations, and then we have a central team uh, based uh, in Varna on the Black Sea in Bulgaria, where we have a uh, hundred staff who are dealing with our day-to-day day-to-day um, uh, operations. And I'm going to show you all the different um, things that they do. Um, and I'm going to tell you a bit about how they, um, how, how that, that business came about um, and what it does for us. But I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but lastly, I wanted to share um, this uh, this lesson, which is something I saw I saw a video clip, which I can share afterwards. Uh, at the sort of start of my business journey, and it was about Agravatis. Um, it's about a very successful businessman, and he had a prime directive in his business, and it was say no to Agravatis. And what is an Agravator? Well, an Agravator can be anyone. It can be a customer. It can be a vendor. It could be a co-founder. It could be an employee. But if you're an Agravator, you've got to go. It's tough enough running this business, and I think knowing when to stay Knowing when to draw those lines, draw those boundaries is really important. It's often very hard to do because the lines are quite blurred. Um, but it's, you know, in the customer's case, it, they could be 1% of your business, but they're taking up 80% of your time. The one you think about when you go to bed and you think about when you wake up in the morning, you, you know, that's not good business. Um, and, and saying no to aggravators is really important, especially in, uh, in the short let world. Um, so I want to talk, I mentioned earlier, I want to talk about our central office and some of the services that we operate. Um, you've probably got a bit of a feel for Altido now. In general, we are a, a full management operator. So we're end-to-end and we're an urban property manager working in, in various cities um, across Europe. But because we've developed um, really good teams in-house, good expertise, um, good, good systems, good processes, we use good software, uh, we're able to also support other businesses uh, and other individuals who aren't necessarily in our core regions. Um, maybe they have an asset that they own or they lease or they manage on the ground, um, but they don't have the time to deal with the guests from the online perspective or from the marketing perspective or from the revenue management perspective. Uh, and so they use part of our services, not all of it. In simple terms, we have a full management offering and then what we call a, a booking only service where we're just um, sitting remotely, sitting virtual on, on, on the virtual side. Um, and these are some of the services that we offer. So that's the Bulgarian flag, those of you who don't know. Uh, and guest relations and reservations is a big one. So we are a 24-7, 365 days a year business. That is a tough business to run and you need to have uh, a well-oiled uh, machine and you need to have uh, a team that are on the phones, um, replying to emails, replying to messages on the, the online travel agents every day. Uh, revenue management, I was speaking earlier about this, is is really important in, in our business. That ADR, driving those rates up, is, is absolutely vital um, to running a successful business financially. And we have uh, quite a significant revenue management team. You'll see uh, some pictures of them shortly. Um, some other things we do, 
um, uh, finance. We do bookkeeping out there, um, invoicing out there. We do our managing maintenance issues. So um, there's the, the case management of individual issues. Account management of our clients um, happens from there. Uh, we've got some HR team out there to help train our staff. Uh, and then we content and connectivity. So creating listings, creating good listings, getting them on the right channels uh, and getting those all important bookings in. And I've alluded to it a few times, but just to give you a context of how this came about, it's often, you know, uh, in, in business as in life, you you ride your own luck. Um, uh, and I think it was Gary Blair, the golf, who said that the, the, the harder he practices, the luckier he gets. And I think that's been true in our, in our journey. You know, we, we've, um, we've certainly had a stroke, a number of stroke of lucks along the way, but we've also worked very hard and, and been very plugged into the industry to make sure we were in the right place at the right time. And a couple of years into our journey, um, we heard about a company, about 100 units based in London, um, who had gone into administration on the Monday. So literally, Full, full steam, short let business, um, coming to the peak of their season and suddenly the lights were off. You had guests turning up in London, knocking on doors, nobody answering. It was, it was carnage. And behind the scenes, this business was essentially being sold. And there was, um, four other companies who were aware of it, one of which was us. Um, we ended up buying the, the clients essentially. Um, and so that process happened on the Tuesday and Wednesday. And on the Thursday, we turned the lights back on. Uh, and started managing as many of these units as we could. But one thing we weren't aware of, and we were running a similar sized business in London and we had our ops team there, was that 10 of their staff weren't in London. They were in Varna in Bulgaria. I'd never been to Bulgaria, but I got on a plane pretty quickly and got out there and there they were. And I couldn't believe it. So I was like, well, how does this work? And it was, you know, it was learning firsthand. Wasn't quite sure how this was going to develop. But what I saw is that they they were building careers in this. It was very different to the staff we had in London who had come for a year or two and probably find it a bit stressful at times. But these these guys were committed to this, building a career in it, understood what they did, um, and were able to do a lot more than I knew possible remotely. Um, and so there were 10 people then, and six years later, there's 100 there. So it's grown 10x, and we have one of the largest offices there, I'll be going out in June. I go out about three, four times a year to spend time with the team. And it's important to me that we can access them. I know there's offshoring in lots of different countries around the world, but I like the fact I can work with them closely and they come to our offices as well to see the properties they help manage. Uh, and by having that central team, they're able to work locally with all the different offices we have. They have a range of language skills. It's not just... Um, local Bulgarians there, but we have people of all nationalities, Americans, Australians, French, Portuguese, um, all, all out there uh, helping um, manage our portfolio. Um, so yeah, a few more services, much of which happens out there. Um, marketing is really, really important. Um, that's how we, we get our guests and we want to get the best rates possible, as I mentioned. And we do that via advertising on as many channels as we can. Um, so you've got a, a big shop window, but typically Airbnb and booking.com are by far and away the lion's share. I think last year for us, it was about 77% was just those two channels. And it would be about 60-40 in favor of Airbnb last year. There are other, um, some other big channels like Expedia and some more niche ones, some high-end ones. Uh, Marriott, even uh, they, they've set up a, a channel called Marriott Homes and Villas, which we're a partner of that. Um, so there's lots of channels and you need to have the right um, software 
an approach to manage all those to generate great bookings. Um, but obviously, direct bookings is really important too. Uh, and particularly as we build a brand for the future, that's something we're developing and investing in because it enables us to get that extra bit of margin. We typically we have to pay 15 to 20% to the OTAs to, to, to get those guests, whereas if they come direct, we can take a direct booking fee there ourselves and, and, and add an extra margin. Um, and we also do offline um, sales as well. So we're working, uh, we have a team uh, working directly with corporate agencies, VIPs, travel management companies um, to bring in those bookings as well. Um, I spoke a bit, here's some of the team that's out in, in, in Varna um, and they, they're doing the, the, the guest relations, which is just so important to what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, they also do some guest vetting. Um, they chase the guests for their pre-booking details uh, and we can upsell. So we offer, um, we've got extra revenue streams to things like airport transfers, uh, in-state cleans, fridge filling, uh, tours. Um, that's a really exciting part of, of the business for the future in terms of adding on that ancillary uh, revenue and, and being a, a, a proper hospitality business. And then there's the reviews, the all important reviews, which help generate bookings in the future. Uh, we go through all of them, we reply to all of them, and where the reviews haven't been positive, we work out what the problem was and try and fix it um, for the next guest. And so lastly, in terms of some of the services I wanted to share that that, that we offer, obviously in-house, but, but, but also externally um, for other property managers is revenue management. And this is so, so important. It links back to that ADR point. Um, this is uh, some of the team covering the various regions. Um, and last year, relative to, to the benchmarks that, that we use, the software that we use, as a result of the, um, their approach, we were able to increase the ADR by almost 10% and the occupancy by 6%. 6%. And that just makes a massive difference to um, the results for your owners um, and the results for you as a, as a management business. Uh, these are some of the softwares we use. Um, so AirDNA is, is, is scrapes the data. Uh, Price Labs is the dynamic pricing software and Crossbooking is our, our PMS and channel manager, which enables us to, to list on all those sites I shared with you. Um, we have a tailor-made approach to every single market. Um, so a different team for each market, we use dynamic pricing. Uh, and then lastly, market analysis and projections. That's key for winning new business. And on the lease side, it's key for understanding whether you want to go into that new business. Um, do you, you know, can you afford to take on that big lease of that apart hotel in that area? Where's the market going? Where's the previous data? Does, does the business plan stack up? Um, so I think, yeah, I think that concludes the end of the presentation, but hopefully that gives you a good idea about the journey I've been on and, and I'm still on. Um, and yeah, delighted to see you guys um, today and hopefully shared something of interest. Thanks so much for that, Will. Well, that was uh, fantastic, Will. Um, for people listening in on the podcast, what would be the, the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, yeah, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, probably is the easiest way. William Parry, Altido, you should, should be there. Uh, sure. Drop me a message. Yeah, okay. So th those people listening in the podcast, by all means, uh, get in touch with Will. If you're interested in uh, using Altido or finding out what they could do for you, then I highly recommend it. As I said, um, Altido manage our hotel and other service accommodation property of ours as well. And so I'm going to uh, wrap up the uh, podcast episode there. Just uh, want a final round of applause for Will Perry, everyone. Thank you.
Fab. Okay, question. I'll start you off whilst you're having a little think. Um, so there's there's been a bit of noise you know, uh, recently in terms of government wanting to restrict um, short-term rental in certain areas. Is that something that you guys have become aware of and what are your thoughts? Yeah, acutely aware of. Um, so we've seen this since right from the start of the business so it's it's not new to us um and in pretty much now i would say in every single city there's been some form of regulation or some form of regulation is coming um so you need to factor that in and prepare for that um particularly if you're taking on a significant amount of risk i'll give edinburgh as an example edinburgh's been running as an unregulated market Come September, we think now is when the regulation will hit. We will lose a significant chunk of our portfolio as a result of that. But we knew this was coming for, for a, a while in advance. So we began, you know, diversification is probably a word I mentioned a number of times today. And we started taking on commercial assets, which would be within the regulation. And so we've already diversified about 50% of our portfolio up there. Um, so I think it's just being aware of what's happening. It's all regulation is also an opportunity, I think, for the size we've got to now. And again, I talked about diversifying, getting into other countries, getting that scale. You can ride with the bumps. You can have, you know, better years in some countries, worse years than others. But it does mean, you know, for some of the smaller competitors, they won't be able to do business anymore. And there might be opportunities for us to pick up business um, or, or you may well see the rates begin to increase as there's less supply. Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, for instance, I think. At least you used to manage a hotel in Edinburgh, um, and that was because the the, the guy in question was was struggling with um, normal short term rentals, so he moved into taking um, guest house B&B into an apart hotel. So that's clearly mm. uh, hotels are still going to be in existence. So for those of you that are looking at that as a potential solution in the future, um, then that that's something that you go into. And then also, as you mentioned, it could just be a case of moving into to different areas. Yeah, and so we'll we'll see we'll see what happens. Um, it's never going to it's never ever as bad as the scaremongers uh, suggest it's going to be. But where there's adversity, there's also opportunities. So we'll, we'll see where the opportunities jump up. It's interesting, actually, you mentioned about pop pop up hotel. Mm. In that, you know, there, there's plenty of um, HMO landlords that are just empty. Um, you know, in between students. Well, that's that's something that I I totally thought. Oh, that could be an interesting one. So you could just go and maybe take over that that HMO for that fallow period, if you like, and just pimp out Partido to fill it, you know? So that's something that I, I definitely thought could be a useful uh, tidbit from that. Anyone got any other questions for Will whilst you see it, Mark? Will, thanks so much for your talk, and, and uh, I, I sort of can resonate with a lot of the stuff you're doing, but on a much smaller scale than, than um, the stuff you're doing. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of ask, it, to, to onboard a property is obviously quite a big investment for yourselves in terms of time and resources. What, um, are, what is a kind of minimum criteria or how, how does that work? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, yes. So just on the onboarding point, because I mentioned it a bit, but running the business, running the business in this scalable way and having offices in different locations, onboarding, spending the money, the time and investment up front to onboard that property in a really thorough way is vital. Otherwise, you're going to have all sorts of problems operationally. So when we, um, our team goes around, gets inside the property and creates a very detailed manual of basically any functional element of that property is documented and put into 
uh, a manual, a, a virtual manual that we have online, so that when a call comes in from the guest saying, where's the stopcock, where's this, where's that, and we've got one of our agents in Bulgaria picking up, they can pick it up very quickly and get there. So that's really important. But as you point out, there's a significant cost and time of doing that. If the property is then going to leave us in a month or two's time, that's uh, that's just a hit hit for us. Um, and equally, if the, the property isn't developing us uh, the margin we need, then that's a problem. So to come to the second part of the question, we've developed it over time. It was probably more rudimentary at, at first, but it was a, what was called a revenue calculator at, at, at the start. And we use various benchmarks, sometimes within our own portfolio, if we have a similar one, or using data elsewhere uh, to plug in what we expect the occupancy to be, what the ADR will be. Um, and then we be can begin to model whether this is going to make financial sense for us. Uh, we now have a much more sophisticated tool that all our growth team will use, and they have to put any property that they have through that, and it spits out basically what our bottom line, what our EBITDA contribution is going to be from this property um, uh, across a year. And if it isn't over a certain threshold, then it doesn't come on. And equally, they get incentivized depending on how far over that threshold it is. Um, so yeah, there's a, a bigger process going on, which helps mitigate some of those risks. But for sure, we've made a lot of mistakes in the past and had to take on inventory that then left very quickly afterwards as a result. That could be reassuring. If our CDO are willing to take it on, then there's some um, sophisticated research and knowledge in there that's going to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling if they are willing to take take a property on. Brian? Um, you talk about whether in the storm was COVID, so um, obviously our challenge is clients and I imagine you put certain measures in place, like what are those and how do you mitigate that? Yeah, um, I mean, like everyone, none of us saw it coming. And so it was reacting, you know, talking to other partners to understand what they were doing at that time, but also, think, you know, brainstorming as as we go and doing a lot on the hoof. I mean, initially, it was a case of we were beginning to lose owners. Um, and that was a big problem for the future because they were not seeing any revenue come in. And we work on this management contract basis and arguably with de-risk that we still have all our fixed costs. So we need some revenue coming in. And we also wanted to retain the owners because we knew that the market would come back. We just didn't know when. So our first thing was, how can we get these properties filled within the local regulations, which were changing on a very regular basis at that time? But going to mid-lets, as we called them, getting anyone in there for three, four months was really important. We worked with the NHS a bit in terms of um, doctors and nurses who were coming and staying for longer periods of time. So that was one way of keeping the owner happy. Maybe they're not getting as much return as they used to, but they're getting something. Um, and we're getting something as well. Uh, but then outside of that, it was a case of just managing the business. So it was looking at any costs that we could reduce internally. Um, so we cut back on a lot of some, some of the software costs you've seen there. Um, but also then uh, we went we went the, the government back loans. So we took a loan in every single region, which we've been paying off. Um, so we had no debt up until that date. And I think we took about a million and a half in debt over that period to make sure we could keep the lights on. We didn't need all of it, but we were prudent about it. And I guess in terms of advice for the future, well, I hope it doesn't happen again. Um, and I hope it's not as significant as that, but there'll always be challenges in business. Um, and uh, yeah, and just making sure that, you know, for us, it's having these diversified revenue streams hopefully will serve us well. Got it. How you doing? How you doing? Good. Enjoy it? Loved it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, on our table this morning, yeah. And all of them have picked up on 
our, our objective, our short-term objective now, but long-term vision. So what's as many was to try and help our gang navigate this wonderful universe and try and get towards their, their vision. Uh, but we, I find a common trait in that people have got their first objective, they can only see their first objective. You, you alluded to um, your, your vision back from 2015. You didn't really expect to be here. But what was that vision? Or, no, sorry, two questions. What was your first objective? Was it just to make shitloads of money in scale? And then what is your, your bigger vision that you're moving towards? Is this still being recorded? Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the first objective was get to Peterborough, and I've done that today, and it took me eight years. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, but it's a really good point. I mean, so the honest answer, and I wish I could, I, I've spoken about this with a few people, I wish I could come to you, and I could change the story, but it wouldn't be true, that this is all in the plan. This is where we hope to go. It was never that. Um, back then, the objective was, it was around the kitchen table with a childhood friend, and it was to set up a business. We had jobs before, which we just left, and we're like, right, we want to set up a business. I mentioned briefly, we would messing around with apple juice which i don't recommend i stick stick with property um and but it was to it, at that point it was it was little goals actually but it was just achieving them and doing it well i think it really helped us this idea of um we were independent we saw all these bigger companies around us doing these things and there was such a temptation to compare yourself and think well maybe they have got it right and maybe we should be pricing low or maybe we should be doing that but we just kept repeating to ourselves and holding ourselves accountable of like we didn't want to be the biggest but we did want to do to be the best that served us really well with our owners and guests in terms of the reputation we built at that point but every single year there was an inflection point and it was difficult to see much further beyond the following year but it was amazing if you look back on each year you're like wow okay we've gone from there to there and and that's great and celebrate that success um, I think now where we've got to now I've, and having had more experience and having ridden the bumps like COVID, I do have a longer term view in the nature of the size of the business we have, we have to and, and, and the um, ambitions we have. But I've kind of learned that process along the way. So I, I don't think there's anything I, I would advocate for it. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a short to, to mid term view, but have that conversation. Don't, have, don't, don't know, you know, you need to know where you expect to be next year and hold yourself accountable to that. But uh, you know, dreaming too far into the future potentially could be unhelpful. Certainly our competitors around us seem to be doing that, saying, you know, we're going to be a billion dollar company. And they went bust a few years later. But it was almost, I was almost thinking at some points, maybe their logic is right. Maybe we've got it wrong. Um, it served us well so far. I don't know where I'll be in eight years time, but we'll use the same strategy and hopefully I'll be back here and have some more of the story to tell. So what I'm taking from that is, you actually stay true to your identity and what you wanted to do. Yeah. That's the key thing because of everybody is struggling with time management. There's shitloads of opportunity everywhere. And, and, and I was certainly guilty of it until Kevin slapped me in the face and said, Oi, great part. Uh, we get blindsided by a load of opportunity. And obviously, a moving monster of Altigo as well. I was just interested in how you navigated that. But that, that focus on what you actually wanted to functionally be identifiable, your core, core function, that's what kept you, you true. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That's what we're taking. Cool. I'll go Pooh and then, then finish on Mark. Go for Pooh. Oh, underneath as well. Questions. 
Uh, would you scale your business very aggressively like this? Uh, what what kind of marketing do you do to pull your clients um, to fill the opportunities? Yeah. Do you do anything with like uh, listening to OTAs or working with the agency? When you say clients, you mean the, the guests? Yeah. Um, we didn't spend any money on marketing on guests before 2022. Um, so we were, again, there's only so much in those early days, particularly when you have a small team, there's only so many hours in the day that you can do and relying on other partners that do their job very well was really important for us. And so we started as an Airbnb management business, completely reliant on Airbnb. The idea of trying to manage multiple channels, we didn't know how to do it and we didn't want to do it. We were just like, Airbnb seems to work. Yes, that was part of the, the margins going to them, but they're providing guests and that's what's creating our business. Um, our marketing budget, even outside of guests, but across, across the business was very, was one of the last things to change. We were just focusing very strongly on building a reputation, word of mouth and referrals in initially London. Uh, and, and that served us well. Um, in recent years, when we've taken on external capital, we, we, we've been able to spend more money on that and particularly on the direct booking side we now do do digital marketing and we can begin to see the trade-off between getting those direct and the extra fee we can take um so that strategy is changing but for the large majority of the, the business it's been limited spend on marketing sure uh, what do you call yeah um there's a lot, a bit like you were saying earlier, there's tons of opportunities out there for that. And most of them probably aren't a good fit. And it's quite easy in the early days to, to spend your time and energy with people either we go to or they come to us saying, you know, I want to, to join the group. Um, we, and I think in the early days, I think, oh, we could be in this country or go to that country or someone from Hawaii is just rung up. Let's do that. The, the more countries you add, the more complexity there is. So right now, any, any, uh, M&A activity would be, strategic within our regions um and there has to be uh, a, a very good financial case for what we're spending relative to our organic growth um i think later on if we do go into to new markets i think entering a new market via acquisition makes a lot of sense for the same reasons why we merged in the first place find that local player who's operated there a long time knows the system knows the setup knows the regs has great partners that that can make sense um but at the moment, I think our growth engine is probably big enough that we will look at opportunistic M&As, um, but it's not a core, it's not in our budget. We don't budget for it. Well, then we'll go, Anise. Yeah, so, then we'll go to break. A bit of a follow-on from Boo's question with merge and acquisitions. What, um, have you had any formal kind of training in doing that or like a mentor or anything with that? And are there any... Um, M&A's that you regret doing, and if so, why? Yeah, this is this. We could do a whole nother talk on this, um, and it'd be quite interesting. So I've learned on the job. Um, I was pretty naive about the process, um, both from acquiring, merging, being acquired, and and I've learned a ton through that experience. Um, I guess if I could give one lesson, be very, very careful of advisors. Um, Advisors are brilliant. We've used some great ones in the past. PwC last year, for example, and they were fantastic. They cost a lot, but they were brilliant. But there are a lot of advisors who will just try and get in there because it's a great, great money to, for them, but they're not actually adding that much 
um, value. I think on a majority of the deals we've done us have been quite small, actually, and the merger we did, actually, it's way less about the lawyers and the corporate finance people and the, that bit. It's all about the relationship. These people you're going to have to work with, or usually you, you would. So do you get on with them? Can you actually work with them? That's, that's something massive for us. Um, and in terms of whether we regret any... I don't think I don't think we've had any major disasters. We've had ones where the you know small portfolios have come on and the founder has left not that long after, so it hasn't worked for them. But I, I wouldn't say there's been any which have so far have been destructive in any way. Thank you for a very reassuring and aspirational presentation. Um, and to give this probably naive question, what is co-living? question um i don't I, I don't think there's actually any one uh defined definition of it in terms of the way we we operate with co-living um we started out or well, that side of the business started out by taking uh it's equivalent of hmos over here i would imagine but it, it it's uh in italy so um is where we started out doing that and you you lease uh a property you put as many bedrooms as you're allowed to in that, and then you have individual students or young professionals sharing a house together. That's on a sort of individual scale. And then on a kind of B2B scale, uh, it's purpose-built student accommodation is where you have a, a block and you, it's like built to rent where you have other amenities. You might have some, some gyms, shared kitchens, that kind of thing. Um, and it, and it works very well, particularly for the younger, um, younger student, younger professional who might be landing in a new city for whatever reason, uh, and they've got a ready-made community. They don't want any hassle or, or faff. They just want to spend, okay, how much is it a month? It's 900 euros a month. And for that, I've got everything. I've got all the bills included, all the hassles dealt with. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the model we operate on that side. So Altido as a brand is purely short-term let. Um, Dover Viva, which is a brand I briefly mentioned, um, they manage about 13,000 beds across uh, biggest regions being Italy and France. Um, uh, and then on our side, we talk, we don't talk in beds, we talk in units. We have about 2,000 properties that we manage and then 1,000 beds on the pop-up hotel side. In terms of revenue terms, because co-living is the least model, so you're recognizing all the revenue as income, it's about 70, 30, 70 on the co-living side, 30 on uh, the short debt side. Thank you for listening to the Serviced Accommodation Property Podcast. You can also follow me on social media and YouTube by searching The Property Soldier. Also check out my website, www.propertysoldier.co.uk, where you can learn even more about property investing and serviced accommodation.